A woman watching a kindergarten Christmas pageant was moved to tears as the children belted out a song with the familiar words from the prophet Isaiah. You be the lion strong and wild, I'll be the lamb meek and mild. We'll live together happily because that's how it ought to be. As I watched that throng of kindergartners sing, she wrote later, something immensely powerful washed over me. It was like a monsoon of both hope and sadness. All these children, all these kids, so certain that the world ought to be this way, and me so certain of all the ways it isn't. It moved me to tears, she writes, a jumbled mix of bittersweet tears, Advent tears, for that long pause between what is and what should be, what is and what we Jesus followers believe in time will be. I find the season of Advent confusing. On the one end, there is Christmas, the bright little trees full of hope and promise and peace and new life. And on the other end of this season that we find ourselves in, there are scripture passages like today's that I'm guessing aren't your favorite. Passages that speak about the end of time, about the coming of the Son of Man at an unexpected hour, taking up one and leaving another behind. And here we are, most of us, stuck in the middle of the two with a jumbled mix of bittersweet tears, trying to hold on to what is happening and what is promised will one day be. Our theme this Advent here at the church is making room. And it's a timely theme because making room in our busy, beautiful, and broken lives for anything during this busy holiday season, let alone something good, is really, really hard to do. It's hard to make room. Not only are our calendars full, but most of us, I'm guessing, also have little room in our minds and our hearts right now as we try to faithfully navigate the political and social landscape during this in-between time of presidencies and policies. It's hard to make room for anything, let alone God, when our lives and the world we live in feel so cluttered and chaotic. But as we begin this Advent season, that is exactly what we are called to do, to make room. It didn't really matter how much his coaches or his teammates encouraged him. Henry showed absolutely no interest in getting on base or making a play in the field. It wasn't that he hated baseball. He just didn't care for it all that much, which is why everyone on the team in the stands was so surprised when during the last game of the season, Henry swung at a pitch. He actually swung at a pitch and by some miracle made contact. A few seconds later, standing on second base, out of breath, with the crowd cheering, you would have thought that Henry would have been thrilled by this unexpected good fortune, but he wasn't. The look on Henry's face, if you took time to notice it, was one of complete and utter fear and terror, which is why no one should have been surprised at what happened next. The next batter came up and had a deep fly ball to right field, deep enough for Henry to tag up and go to third. The coach was beckoning him to come, but Henry didn't move. Not a muscle. 
The next batter hit a solid single into right, and again, Henry stood stoic on the base. And when the team's best hitter sent a scorching line drive past a diving third baseman, you guessed it, Henry stayed frozen on the spot, seemingly oblivious to all that was happening on around him. When Henry returned to the dugout, his coach took a deep cleansing breath and asked him as calmly as he could, Henry, why on earth did you never leave second base? If I did, coach, I didn't know what would happen next. That was the only place where I was safe. When we encounter scripture passages like today's that teach us to stay awake and alert for Christ's second coming, for his coming to us, there are three basic ways I think we can interpret these passages. The first is to read them as if we are actually living in the last days, where every sign of trouble and chaos is a sign of the coming apocalypse. In this scenario, there is little we can do really but stand there on the base and wait for the end to come. A more nuanced interpretation is believing that the shift from this world to the next is coming. We just don't know when it's going to happen. It might be tomorrow or another millennia, but either way, we are to live as Christians in a state of readiness. So when Jesus does come back, when the world does change, we won't be left behind. Now, while both of these interpretations have some theological grounding, you can make a good case for both, I I find neither of them all that compelling or well-aligned with my understanding of God. Both ask so little of us but to just stand there and wait, and both paint such a dark and depressing picture of God. When I encounter texts about the end of things, about the end of time, about the coming of the Son of Man, I choose the third option that sees these passages as a reminder that in all the chaos and clutter of our lives, God is present. God has arrived, luring the world, pushing the world, pushing us more towards what we, what it, can one day be. In this interpretation, then, there are many apocalypses, not just one. There are many endings, many disruptions that alter the landscape of our lives and the world. And in each one, Christ, we believe, is coming to make all things new. These strange texts about the end of times, I believe, reveal a truth about our lives that we'd rather avoid. Now, we've never seen a flood like Noah's, but we have seen people's lives cut short and communities destroyed by natural disasters, and we may never have seen two people working in a field and one yanked away. But imagine if Jesus had said these things. Imagine if he had said two colleagues were working together and one was diagnosed with cancer and the other was not. Two couples got married, and one stayed married, and the other went through a messy and bitter divorce. Two te- teenagers were navigating high school and adolescence, and one succumbed to addiction, and the other did not. If we're willing to look closely at our lives and the lives of other people, we will see there is never just one apocalypse. There are many. The trouble is our natural reaction to an apocalypse, to a change, to a disruption, is to do whatever we can to avoid the pain and discomfort. It's hard to see amidst all the anxiety and fear that always follow an unanticipated disruption, unwelcome change, but 
When things get crazy, it's my experience, for myself anyway, when things get crazy, I tend to fall asleep. I tend to fall asleep to the moment I'm in. I want to nap my way through it. But I also fall asleep on the promises of God. Which is why I think Jesus says to us in today's passage and in other passages, stay awake, don't fall asleep. As difficult and as painful as it might be, stay awake, for I'm coming and I'm coming soon. A few weeks after 28-year-old Carrie O'Brien's boyfriend ended their long-term relationship, she began to realize that she was picking places for lunch based upon whether or not they would be a good place for her to cry. She was choosing lunch locations based on her ability to cry there and not feel like a total fool. This realization led her to start a website entitled NYC Crying Guide, the best places in New York City to shed a tear. Immediately, people and friends started filling her website with recommendations. The Build-A-Bear Workshop on Fifth Avenue. If you want to be treated like a real person, someone wrote, despite your overflowing tears, go here immediately. It's the best place on earth. One person suggested the ATM lobby at Bank of America on 5th and 48th, a very average, basic, no-frills place to cry. Someone else, a couple of folks actually, wrote the subway, especially the 7th train. It's a crier's dream. I cry there at least once a day. The list goes on. You can look it up. But what is most notable to me and to others is that not one church is mentioned on that list. You get a -a Build-A-Bear workshop and a subway train, but not one community of faith. When things get chaotic and crazy, as they are in our world right now, it is so easy to go asleep, to go to sleep on God's promises, because it's really hard to hold together both the hope that we cling to and the sadness that we run from. It's not easy staying awake to the present moment because the present moment is often full of uncomfortable things like ambiguity, uncertainty, and inconsistencies. But staying awake during an apocalypse, whether it be a big one or a small one, is what it seems we are called to do as people of faith because the new world God promises us is always built in the rubble of the old. We don't gather here Sunday after Sunday to preserve the world we live in. We gather here Sunday after Sunday to wait for the coming of God's new heaven and new earth. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but our lives, all of us, our lives are filled with unexpected, surprising, life-altering events. And in the midst of it all, we are invited to keep watch, to stay awake to the presence of God. And it's not always easy to stay awake and keep watch, especially when the unexpected is tragic or difficult. Sometimes you have to wait a while, to see where God is at work, and that waiting can be really hard. But the promise throughout all of Scripture is that God meets us at our point of greatest need and accompanies us even and especially in the most difficult of circumstances. I know some of you pretty well. You've been through an apocalypse, and God has brought you through. Now, when life gets hard, it's easy to fall asleep to the present moment, like I said, and to God's promises. But the problem is when we do that, when we take a nap, when we fall asleep, when we don't keep alert, we idealize normalcy. And when you idealize normalcy, when you idealize the status quo, you lose hope that with God there actually is something more out there. And with God there is always more. 
In his new book, Reclaiming Hope, Michael Weir writes about a sociologist who spent time interviewing people whose severe depression, I mean dark depression, led them right to the edge. The sociologist discovered that those who eventually emerged from their life-threatening depression did so in possession of something that was amazing. They, they left that time in possession of a hope that was different from any kind of hope he had ever observed before. He called it a fundamental hope, a hope that could only emerge from traveling through deep disappointment and despair. Today, on this first Sunday of Advent, we claim our place in the line of God's people, of God's waiting people, and we join this line, each with our own apocalyptic stories of tragedy and sorrow, of stories of our lives being turned upside down. And while we wait, we are called to make room for God and for one another by telling our stories of God's faithfulness and listening to the stories of other people, even, perhaps, through their tears. And as we witness together, we may not be exactly sure what it is we're waiting for, but as we make room in our hearts and minds, we are filled with a priceless gift, priceless gift that is handed down to us from all those who have waited in line before us. And it's the gift of hope, true hope, biblical hope, hope that is fundamental and foundational, hope as persistent and as fragile as a flame, hope that God has come, that God is with us, and that God will come again, hope that is fundamental and foundational to all of our lives. Christ is coming, and he's coming soon. And he's coming into our lives and into the world. He is coming into our confusion, our uncertainty, and our fear. He is coming to take us from where we are to where God longs for all of us to be. This is our Advent promise. Christ is coming to make all things new. Amen.